You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. Hidden world of gnomes. They are tiny creatures who live under the floorboards of the Arnold Brothers department store, established 1905. And the gnomes have lived so long inside the department store, they no longer believe in the outside. In day or night or rain or snow, those were all myths to them. And over the years, they had spread out as clans throughout the store, from the bargain basement to consumer accounts and everything in between, from haberdashery to corsetry to young fashions to soft furnishings, stationery and millery. And the gnomes mark time by the cycles that they experience, by opening time and closing time. And the seasons of the store, January sales, spring into spring fashions, summer bonanza, and Christmas fair. And their contented lives in the Arnold Brothers store were upended when the store gnomes receive a dire prediction. And Pratchett gives us this story as it is recorded in the sacred book of the gnomes, first floor, verses 18 and 19. It reads, And thus the seasons fell thicker than the cushions that are in soft furnishings, third floor, until a stranger came from afar, crying out in a loud voice, and he cried, Whoa, whoa. That stranger was named Maskin. He was a gnome from the outside, who interprets for the inside gnomes of the Arnold Brothers department store the meaning of all the new signs that are spread throughout the store, which read, everything must go. I'm reminded of that scene in Pratchett's book whenever I read the story of John the Baptist who appears in the wilderness pulling no punches as he preaches, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. Now that is not a normal sermon introduction. John throws down a gauntlet for his hearers, and then he goes on from the initial shock of his words, calling the crowd who had come out to hear him of all things a brood of vipers to pull no punches. There will be wrath, he says. Even now there's an axe at the root of the tree, he warns, and trees will be cut down and all of them will be thrown into fire. So Merry Christmas, everybody. We are on this third Sunday of Advent. We are still far from the nativity story. There is no manger, no cattle lowing, no angelic choruses, no magi from the east, none of that. 
Instead, we're given John the Baptist, that friend you hope won't hear about your next party. You brood of vipers. What a buzzkill John is on this third Sunday of Advent. Those same words in Matthew's gospel are addressed only to a particular group of folks, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those religious leaders and thinkers of the day who had power over the people and their religious practices. But here in Luke's gospel, no one is spared. John points his finger at all of us. The words are directed to the entire multitude. And John warns them, don't count on your heritage, your traditions. Don't think you're safe because of who you are or who your family is or where you were born or your station in life, your citizenship. None of that will save you. Now, the depiction of John the Baptist that we're given is intentionally a throwback to another time. He is a caricature of a prophet of old, someone who's withdrawn from the villages and the cities, living in the wilderness, which itself is understood as a place of encounter and testing, a place of formation of identity and covenant, of preaching words of judgment which set our imaginations on fire. So we might ask, what's this destruction that John the Baptist is foreshadowing? I mean, we hear the phrase, wrath that is to come, and we tend to fill in the blanks, don't we? End times wrath, right? Except that's not in the text anywhere. It's one of those interpretations that we bring to it. And as we listen to John, we need to be very careful that we're not reading too much in between the lines. For example, the wrath that's in the text is of an indeterminate source. It's not defined as God's wrath, but rather, interestingly, as the wrath to come. Now, this is Luke's gospel, remember, written a little later than the gospel of Mark, which most scholars think was written around the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE. And Luke seems to have been written a little bit later, maybe 15 years or so. So with that crucial setting in mind, we can imagine that the wrath would have been understood as the experiences of war, of siege, and destruction at the hands of the Roman army, which the people had lived through. It's a memory and a story not too far in the past for Luke's readers. And then John goes on to warn, the axe is at the root of the tree, which sounds pretty ominous and violent, doesn't it? I mean, trees are valuable commodities in our world, so too in the ancient world. And we know that no one cuts down a fruit-bearing tree unnecessarily. They're not cut down for bonfires if they are good trees. It's a waste of resources, isn't it? Rather, you cut down trees that aren't producing or those that might be undesirable in cross-pollinating with producing trees. Those unfruitful ones, those are the ones that get the axe. So in John's words, it's not an act of malice, but it's an act done to protect the healthy fruit trees. He's not pointing out destruction for destruction's sake, but the thinning out of that which is not living according to God's dream for the world. 
Now, I do believe that the most miraculous part of this story is that with all of John's talk of snakes and wrath and bonfires and axes, that folks aren't scared away, that they stay. And they not only stay, but they have follow-up questions for him. They say, what then shall we do? This is a telling response by his audience. They want to hear more. They know something isn't right with their lives, and their question points to their longings. It's a question you ask when things aren't going well. When you're looking for something more, for meaning or purpose, hope, or even joy. When everything else that we've tried hasn't worked, we sigh and we ask, what then shall we do? John responds in a distinctively interactive way with targeted messaging. To the whole group, to the crowds who haven't gone away, he says, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Now notice, John does not list out a long list of positions on issues or theological doctrines and demand that people state their allegiance to those beliefs. There's no focus on sexuality or abortion or any of those dividing lines that are espoused by religious groups in our day. No, it's simply this. Do you have more than you need? Then figure out who doesn't and share. That's it. Share. Don't ask if they're deserving or not, or if you have more than enough, then share with those who don't. And then to specific groups, he gives tailored answers to their questions. To the tax collectors who come to him, he says, collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. Now, tax collectors have always been an easy target for criticism. I mean, no one likes them. No one sits around and wishes for their children to grow up to be tax collectors. In John's day, the system functioned differently than today. Tax collectors were, in a sense, independent contractors. So they were to pay a certain set amount to the empire in taxes, and then whatever they could extract over and beyond, then they could add to their own pile of wealth, to their own stock portfolio. They could use it to install an in-ground pool or take a holiday in the south of France. They had power with their position, power to exploit or to be fair, to be greedy or show restraint. Now, granted, the system wasn't set up for it to be easy for them to be fair. By default, they were rewarded to collect as much as possible for themselves. But John says to them, whenever you go to work, live faithfully. Follow the covenant of God. Be honest and trustworthy and don't cheat anyone. And then he turns to the soldiers who come to him. And yes, apparently there were soldiers out in the middle of nowhere listening to John the Baptist, and he says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. Now, we might ask whether these were Gentile Roman soldiers or could they have been Jews who had been conscripted into the Roman army. It's a difficult question to answer, but it's a fair assumption that there would have been Jewish soldiers. There's ample evidence of diaspora Jews serving in the military at that time. And so to these soldiers, John too, 
provides some practical teaching. He says, don't use your power or your might to take advantage of civilians. No extortion, no shakedown of anyone. Now notice what John doesn't do. He doesn't say, leave your old life behind. Join me out here in the wilderness for a life of prayer and fasting with locusts and honey for your only snacks. Nor does he say you can't be a tax collector or you can't be a soldier. Rather, this wild preacher in the desert offers a spirituality of presence saying, practice your faith wherever you are. Practice your faith with what you have, with what you've been given. Pay attention to power imbalances you are in, to those whose life and well-being can either benefit from your actions or be harmed by them. And then do what is just. I love that John gives hands-on, tangible instructions. I mean, it's not spiritually frou-frou-y, we might think. It's not overtly, inwardly focused. John's teachings are just day-to-day stuff targeted to particular social groups according to their context. And what he seems to be saying is this life of faith of yours is 24-7. It's not once a week. And then you, his hearers, us, we're tasked with the responsibility of figuring out how best to live out this life of faith. His guidance is practical. It's community-oriented. It's not individualized spirituality. There's nothing superhuman in what he's asking us to do. Nothing particularly saint-worthy either. Just whatever your station is in life, share generously, act fairly, live justly. Whatever your job or career, perform it well for the glory of God. Be a good tax collector. Be an honorable soldier. Be a good secretary. Be a compassionate teacher. Be a gentle caregiver. Be an honest contractor. It's not pretentious. Not particularly pious either. John just says, do it for goodness sakes. Don't make a big scene about it. Be kind, generous, trustworthy, honorable, just. This is not rocket science. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, John says. Now, repentance is not a word we spend much time on. For John, repentance is not something one does at home, quietly reviewing one's life choices. Repentance is visible. It's action-oriented. We see it in the choices we make as we live out God's call to love our neighbor. It's interesting, even though he looks a little bit odd and he's out there in the middle of nowhere, John the Baptist is not preaching revolution here. There's no declaration to tear down unjust systems or even the dismantling of oppressive regimes. What John is speaking of is normal, boring, everyday human stuff. Sharing, kindness, and goodwill. Can that really change the world? Is it enough? The political theorist Hannah Arendt was born in Germany in 1906. She fled to Paris in 1933 and then immigrated to the United States after the outbreak of World War II. And she's best known for attending the trial of Adolf Eichmann. 
the German officer instrumental in the implementation of many of the Holocaust atrocities. And she says that she expected to see a monster. But what she found instead was a run-of-the-mill bureaucrat doing what he was told. Arendt uh, reported on the trial for the New Yorker and then later published her account and reflections in the book Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. At the time, psychologists interviewed Eichmann and found him to be normal. He loved his wife, his kids. All in all, he was the most unremarkable human being. And he claimed he bore no responsibility for the horrors perpetuated by the Nazi institution. He protested that he was just doing his job. He did his duty, not only obeying orders, but also obeying the law of the land. His crimes and the crimes of the Nazi state had become what Arendt called banal, committed systematically with official procedures and reports, with policies and statistics. The evils done by low-level pawns in the system, by mid-level managers and by highly placed bureaucrats, they weren't adequately named or opposed, but instead they were all just accepted made routine, and filed away. And what rightly appalls us today was implemented by ordinary people without moral revulsion, political indignation, or organized resistance. Arendt argues that such atrocities happened because people were no longer thinking about what they were doing outside of the framework of the political system of, what, of which they were a part. And Eichmann chose to comply without reflection or intention. And in doing so, revealed the unsettling truth that non-thinking can be genocidal. When John the Baptist is pressed for concrete examples of how to live in this new reality, he points to people's everyday lives and invites them to pay attention to their possessions to their occupations, and to their relationships in community. Can you do your work ethically, John asks us? Can you do it with care for others, without exploitation? Figure out how, and then do it. Now, we can be tempted to water his words down, to simply be nice, but behind what John is calling the people to is a radical intentionality, not allowing the norms of the society to, cha to change and shape our actions, but rather to use the ideas of God's realm of shalom to determine how we will live each day, to ask ourselves the life-changing question, how am I living out God's call to me to love my neighbor as myself. This is the core of a reflective faith. Whether you work in a classroom or a factory floor or a small office, whether you're a sales clerk or a police officer. In the film adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, the filmmakers added in a few lines for the wizard Gandalf to speak. And he talks about his disagreement with a fellow wizard and he says, Saruman believes that it is only great power that can hold evil in check. That is not what I have found. 
I have found that it is the small things, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay, simple acts of kindness and love. At times, it is in our individual actions of kindness, in the choosing of love over fear, of living nonviolently in a society which is ravaged by the culture of death and guns, of being a people in a community which welcomes those who have been pushed aside, who have been shunned by the world at large. And yes, I believe that kindness and love pushes us to acknowledge our corporate responsibility too, so that we can find the courage to speak up when we see injustice and when we refuse to take part in the dehumanization of others. You see, I believe that John will not let us off the hook. He's not simply saying, be nice. What he's saying is, be most fully human. Reflect in yourself the realm of God that's about to break into the world. Be the human being God intends you to be. And as we do, we create a home for all in our world. The translation is difficult, but I love the idea from Irenaeus, who wrote in the second century, quote, the glory of God is a living person fully alive. Isn't that what John is asking of his hearers? He's asking of us to bring glory to God by how you live each day. And we can see that in our reading from Zephaniah, which echoes Irenaeus's vision of humanity when the prophet proclaims, God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I can't hear those words without the melody of a choral anthem by Mark Hayes that runs through my head. And he puts it this way. He says, and the Father will dance over you in joy. He will take delight in whom he loves. Is that a choir I hear singing the praises of God? No, the Lord God himself is exulting over you in song. Imagine that, the Holy One dancing with joy over you delighting in you, God's beloved, as you share what you have, as you live justly with loving kindness and humility. And with God's delight, the world becomes a place of welcome, a home for everyone. Our passage in Luke ends with these words. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Another clue for us, I think, that this talk of wrath and axes at the root of the tree misses John's point. The good news of John is that the time is now. We don't have to wait any longer. In this very moment, we can choose to walk in the ways of God's shalom. So on this third Sunday of Advent, the ancient question is ours too. What then shall we do? What then shall we do? shall we do? Let us live generous, joy-filled lives. May we truly be human beings fully alive, for that is the glory of God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, 
be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.